All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. When Ronnie showed up for work that day, everyone later said they thought there was something off about him. This was nothing new, though. Everyone always thought there was something off about Ronnie. The 23-year-old had never been the most trustworthy employee at the Brooklyn car dealership. But being that his family actually owned the business, there wasn't much anyone else could do about it. His co-workers thought it was strange that Ronnie's dad, Ronnie Sr., didn't show up for work that day. When they asked Ronnie where he was, Ronnie just shrugged and said he figured his dad would be in at any time. Only his father never showed. Even though he was born Ronald Jr., everyone called him Butch. Butch worked in the service department of the Brigante Carl Buick dealership, doing oil changes and tune-ups. Truth be told, though, Butch didn't do that particularly well either. It was an open secret that he and Ronnie Sr. didn't get along, and that was putting it mildly. Everyone in the shop had heard the two of them screaming at the top of their lungs at each other on more than one occasion. In fact, Butch's dad didn't care if his son showed up for work or not. And yet, he still kept paying the 23-year-old and even gave him a weekly stipend on top of that. Some of Butch's close friends who knew this thought this should have been enough, but Butch was always complaining how the pay was lousy, and he thought he deserved more money. So to supplement his income, Butch turned to petty crime. In November of 1974, Butch was on probation after pleading guilty to stealing an outboard motor. One thing the job at the dealership did for him was provide cover to his probation officer, who wanted to see his pay stubs proving he was still gainfully employed. At around noon on November 13th, Butch left for lunch and never came back to work. This wasn't anything out of the ordinary either. Butch went to hang out with his girlfriend Sherry Klein and another friend named Bobby Kelsky. Throughout the afternoon, he kept mentioning to the two of them how strange it was that he couldn't get hold of his family. He said that he noticed all the cars were still parked in the driveway, yet no one was answering the phone. He even made a big show of trying to call home in front of Sherry, but no one answered. By 6 p.m. that night, Butch was in his favorite watering hole, Henry's Bar, which was located not far from his house. He made a phone call from the bar, raising his voice loudly to let everyone within earshot know he couldn't get hold of anyone. Then he kept his voice raised and announced that he was going home to check on his family. About a half hour later, Butch came rushing back into the bar and began frantically shouting that his parents had been shot. A group of Butch's friends went with him back to the house. Inside, they found the entire family dead in their separate bedrooms. Mom, Dad, and Butch's four siblings. They were all lying face down in bed, and they had each been shot in the back. One of Butch's friends, Joe Yeswit, made an emergency phone call to the Suffolk County Police Department and told them they needed to come right away. Everyone inside the house was dead, he told them. 
The victims were Butch's parents, Ronald DeFeo Sr., Butch's mother Louise, and his four siblings, 18-year-old Dawn, 13-year-old Allison, 12-year-old Mark, and 9-year-old John. All of the victims were still dressed in their nightclothes, indicating they had all been shot the night before while they slept. The murder weapon was determined to be a 35 caliber lever-action Marlin rifle. Both the DeFeo parents had been shot twice in the back while all the children had been killed with a single shot. What baffled the police was how someone could have gone room to room shooting the family, yet none of them appeared to have woken up. At first, Butch told police he had no idea how this could have happened. Butch said he had stayed home from work the day before because he'd caught a stomach bug. He told the investigators he stayed up late that night watching a movie on TV before finally falling asleep sometime around 2 a.m. in the TV room. He then said he woke up about two hours later with stomach cramps. It was at that time that he noticed his brother Mark's wheelchair parked just outside the bathroom. Mark had suffered a broken leg playing football sometime earlier. Butch said he noticed the bathroom light shining from under the door. Then he heard the toilet flush and assumed it was his brother. He said he fell back asleep and by the time he finally woke up again later that morning he felt well enough to go back to work. Butch told investigators that he never heard any gunshots and that after he got up, he never saw any of his family members again before leaving for work. The fact that Butch said he never heard any gunshots was suspicious to investigators. At the same time, they couldn't find anyone else in the neighborhood who reported hearing the shots either. And you'd think that many shots from a high-caliber rifle would have woken someone. The most they could find is one of the neighbor children reported hearing a dog barking late at night. When police asked Butch who might have had cause to harm his family, Butch immediately pointed the finger at a guy named Louis Fellini who he claimed was a mafia hitman. One other less well-known secret about the DeFeo family was that they came from a mob background. It was rumored that Ronald Sr. had an uncle who was a high-ranking member of the Genovese crime family. And there were claims that these mob ties were really what helped fund the family's lavish lifestyle. Investigators would later determine that DeFeo Sr., and his family had been living well above their means. It seemed unlikely to them that the car dealership alone could have provided enough income to afford their lavish three-story colonial and multiple cars. The fact that the family was mobbed up did seem to jibe with Butch's wild claim that a mafia hitman may have been responsible for murdering them too. Butch told the police that Fellini and his wife had actually lived with them a few years earlier, after Fellini's house burned down. He said Fellini had a key to the house and that he thought the man had buried a box of money and jewels on the property. He theorized the man had probably come back to dig it up and decided to murder everyone at the same time. Butch also said that Fellini had a grudge against him as well. He told police that a few weeks earlier he and Fellini had gotten into a loud argument over the paint job Butch had done to Fellini's car. Later on, Ronald Sr. told his son he didn't know who he was messing with and that the man was a mafia hitman who would surely kill him just for crossing him. When police asked Butch if all that was true, why would Fellini leave him of all people alive? But Butch didn't have an answer. As Butch continued to talk to investigators, he also admitted to some of his own criminal activities. Butch admitted to using heroin into breaking into a neighbor's home to steal some antiques to fund his habit. 
Since he was on probation, he said his sister Dawn had been providing him urine samples to cover for the mandatory drug tests. Butch kept emphasizing that if he was telling the truth about all this criminal activity, then surely he must be telling the truth about the other parts of his story as well. But the police remained suspicious of Butch's tale. Or tales, as it were. Because Butch couldn't keep his story straight during the interrogation. Other people they spoke to who knew Butch described him as erratic and untrustworthy. Witnesses began to emerge describing to police about the many violent altercations Butch had had with his father over the years, including one recent incident where he threatened his father with a gun. Butch's friends told investigators that Butch had been taking drugs for at least five years and that they had taken a serious toll on his mental state. He was constantly angry and, some said, even dangerous. One of the neighbors described Butch as not all there. One other story that would later come out was how Butch's father had trusted him with making a $20,000 deposit for the dealership. Only Butch said the money was stolen, and his father didn't believe him. Police searched the DeFeo home and found the box for the murder weapon, the 35 caliber Marlin rifle. Investigators soon learned that Butch was a bit of a gun nut, and in the weeks prior to the murders, he had been looking to purchase a silencer. Eventually, they were able to recover the rifle itself from where Butch had tossed it off a nearby dock. Police continued to interrogate Ronald DeFeo Jr. and were eventually able to get him to confess to the murders of his family. Ronald DeFeo Jr. would eventually be judged of sound mind and be convicted of all six murders. But all the way up to his trial, Butch continued to change his story. At one point, he even tried to implicate his sister Dawn as an accomplice to the murders. But then things took an especially wild turn once Butch took the witness stand. That was when Butch DeFeo began to claim that in the weeks prior to the murders, he'd begun hearing ghostly voices in the house he lived in at 112 Ocean Avenue, and that those voices had been telling him to do terrible things to his family. On the night of the murders, Butch said a hooded demonic figure with black hands appeared to him and physically placed the rifle in his own hands. Then this creature followed him from room to room, forcing him to shoot his family. It was a bizarre defense and one that would only get stranger and more terrifying a few years later when a new family, the Lutzes, moved into Butch's old house in Amityville, Long Island. Just 28 days after moving into the house at 112 Ocean Avenue, the Lutz family fled their home suddenly, leaving all their possessions behind. They too claimed that the house was haunted and demonic spirits had driven them away. This is a story that would come to be known around the world as the Amityville Horror. The Amityville Horror is without a doubt the most well-known haunted house story in history. The original book, The Amityville Horror, would go on to be a major bestseller in 1977, and from there be turned into a smash hit movie two years later. Now, you think you might know the story of the Amityville Horror, but do you know the whole story? In this episode, I'm going to tell you all about it. I'm Nate Hale, and true story, I really did do my sixth grade book report on the Amityville Horror. And this is The Conspirators.
There's a lot you have to wade through in telling the story of the Amityville Horror. There have been so many conflicting narratives and details added and debunked over the years. It's difficult to tell what to believe. You may have read the original book about the haunting by Jay Anson, or saw the hit movie they made in 1979, or possibly even one of the 23 movies and counting they've made over to the years since then, that all bear the name Amityville in the title. The name Amityville has become so synonymous with the haunting that you can slap it onto any movie and you'll instantly know it's going to be a horror story, or at least a horrible one. In researching this episode, I discovered that according to IMDb, the endless string of Amityville movies actually includes Amityville Cop, Amityville Bigfoot, Amityville in Space, Amityville Vibrator, and Amityville Poo. I swear I'm not making this up. But back to the real story of the Amityville Horror. Or at least the story as it gets most often told. It all appears to start with Ronald DeFeo Jr. Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s constantly shifting stories about the demonic entities that forced him to kill his family appears to be the point where all the stories of ghosts and demons originates from. But although it would be easy at that point to simply write the entire incident off as a horrific series of murders committed by a mentally deranged individual, there are still many questions that remain unanswered. For one thing, to this day, no one has ever been able to figure out for certain how Ronnie DeFeo Jr. could have managed to go from room to room shooting all his family in the back, yet no one reported hearing the shots. One other fact you simply can't ignore is that the Lutz family really did move in a year after the murders, then abruptly abandoned the house only 28 days later. This does seem to indicate that something really did happen there. The question is, what? The house at 112 Ocean Avenue was built in 1927 in the small town of Amityville, New York. It's an upscale neighborhood full of lavish homes, including the former DeFeo house. The house is three stories tall and over 3,000 square feet, and it comes with a pool and a boathouse. When George and Kathy Lutz first laid eyes on the place, they fell in love with it. George and Kathy had both been married before, and they each had their own house. They were trying to consolidate down into a single home that they could share with Kathy's three kids from her previous marriage, nine-year-old Daniel, seven-year-old Christopher, and five-year-old Missy. It's hard to say why the realtor decided to show the Lutzes the house on Ocean Avenue in the first place. It was probably just on the off chance the real estate agent thought they might finally have a shot at unloading it. The house had remained unsold for nearly a year following the murders. The fact was nobody wanted to buy a house where six people had been murdered in. The price had been slashed down to $80,000, the equivalent of $400,000 today. Just for comparison, the estimated value of the house is currently at over a million dollars today. But even at the relative bargain price back in 1976, the house was still out of George and Kathy's price range. But it was love at first sight for Kathy with the house, and the Lutzes decided they'd do whatever it took to buy the place. Before the realtor took things any further, they did inform the Lutzes about the murders that occurred inside the house only a year earlier. George and Kathy had heard about the murders. It had been big news after all the year before, so it would have been difficult to avoid. But the thought of moving into the murder house didn't dissuade them one bit. After all, they were getting the bargain of a lifetime, and on top of that, the home was coming fully furnished. All the DeFeo's furniture was still inside the house, including the bed frames they had been murdered on. One of George's friends was superstitious about the history of the place where the couple were moving to. 
and he strongly suggested to George and Kathy that they should get a priest to bless the place before they moved in. George reached out to an old family friend, Father Ralph Pecoraro, better known as Father Ray. He agreed to come by the house on December 18, 1975, the day the Lutzes were scheduled to move in. Father Ray later gave an interview about his experience inside the house to the popular TV show In Search Of, in which he claimed to have first encountered supernatural entities inside the house. Father Ray showed up as the Lutzes were unloading the moving truck. He went through the house room by room, blessing the place. He said he had a strange feeling about the place right when he stepped through the front door. But it was as he got to the sewing room that things took a terrifying turn. Father Ray said that when he entered the room, he found it strange how cold it was inside. True, it was December, but this particular room was much colder than the rest of the house. Father Ray only got a few steps inside the room before he heard a guttural voice ordering him to get out. Then the priest felt an invisible hand slap him hard. Contrary to what the movie showed you, there were no swarms of flies attacking the priest. Although Father Ray later admitted in his television interview that the things he experienced inside the house shook him enough to send him running out the front door without finishing the blessings. George and Kathy were shocked to see Father Ray come rushing out of the house looking pale and shaken, then abruptly leave with no explanation. Now, in hindsight, this probably should have given the couple some second thoughts about moving in. But this was their dream home. And on top of that, George was a former Marine and he wasn't easily frightened. Other problems began for the Lutzes during their first night sleeping in the house. George was the first to experience something unusual. That was when he woke up at 3.15 a.m. for inexplicable reasons. On that first night, George said he woke to hear a strange tapping noise. He got up to look around and could hear the family dog barking wildly at something outside. He went out in the backyard and noticed the boathouse door was swinging open. He thought someone might have been prowling inside, so he went over to the boathouse to check it out. Only there was no one there. George shrugged it off, latched the boathouse door, then went back inside to bed. But every night after that, George kept waking up at 3.15 like clockwork. He would later come to theorize that this must have been the exact time that Ronald DeFeo Jr. committed the murders. Some paranormal investigators who have studied the haunting have suggested that this time might also have some other special significance. Because in the Western Christian folklore, the time between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. is considered to be the witching hour, when the veil between the earthly realm and the demonic realm is at its thinnest. But George's sudden insomnia was just one strange thing that began happening to the family. Within the first few nights, Kathy began having terrible nightmares in which she said she could vividly see the murders occurring as if she were looking out through the eyes of Ronald DeFeo. The oldest son, Danny, said both parents became especially irritable toward the kids and would often beat them with spoons even for the tiniest infraction. George and Kathy argued constantly because objects kept moving around the house and each of them kept accusing the other of moving them. In particular, there was this four-foot-tall lion statue that kept mysteriously appearing in other rooms. George and Kathy were mad at each other because they thought the other was the one doing it as a prank. That is until one day when Kathy swore she saw the lion scooting across the floor a few inches all by itself. Then there was the temperature inside the house. George said he could never get warm enough. 
He spent large amounts of times huddled near the fireplace wrapped in blankets trying to stay warm. Whenever he stepped away, though, he always felt as if he were freezing. On their fifth day in the house, Kathy was downstairs fixing lunch when she heard Christopher and Missy shouting from upstairs. She dashed up the stairs to see what was going on, only to find that the upstairs toilets were filled with oozing black stains. On another occasion, Daniel said his room became infested with flies. This would have been especially unusual considering it was winter and the flies should have been dormant. Daniel said one day he grabbed a rolled-up newspaper and swatted over a hundred flies before finally going to get his mother to proudly show her what he'd done. Only when Daniel returned to the room, all the flies had mysteriously vanished. This is one of those stories you have to stop and question, though, because if you've ever seen the movie The Amityville Horror, then you probably remember the scene where the priest gets driven out of the house by a swarm of flies. But Father Ray insisted that this part didn't really happen. Yes, he said a ghostly voice told him to get out, and yes, he also claimed that he felt himself being slapped by an invisible hand. But he said that no flies attacked him. The movie screenwriter would later admit that he had added the flies for dramatic effect. And yet Daniel Lutz insisted that he really did have his own creepy encounter with a swarm of insects. What's even more peculiar about instances like this is how easily George and Kathy just seemed to accept things as they were and shrug them off. That same day, George and Kathy forgot all about the flies because they were supposed to go to a wedding. But as soon as George entered the church, he said he started feeling sick. When he got to the part of the ceremony where he was supposed to take communion, he became so nauseous he nearly passed out. Christmas Day came and went without incident. It wasn't until after the Lutz family went to bed that once again more strange things occurred. As was becoming usual, George woke up at 3.15 a.m., once again heard strange noises from outside and went out in the backyard to investigate. It was as he turned around and looked up at the house that his heart nearly seized up. He could clearly see a large shadowy figure in the window of Missy's room. George bolted for the house and ran up the stairs as fast as he could. But when he burst into Missy's room, the little girl was still fast asleep. And no one else was there. It was around this time that Missy began talking to an imaginary friend she said was named Jody. According to Missy, Jody was a pig who could change his size, sometimes making himself super tiny. Other times he could be as big as the house. One day, Kathy said she was upstairs when she heard Missy talking to someone in her room. It was only when Kathy heard another voice answering Missy that she panicked and rushed into the bedroom. But inside, there was only Missy, sitting there playing by herself. Although Kathy said one other thing that gave her a fright was when she noticed the small rocking chair in the corner of the room was rocking all on its own. This wasn't Kathy's only encounter with Jody either. She later claimed that on a different occasion she cried out when she looked out the bedroom window, only to see a pair of glowing red eyes staring back at her. On day 11 inside the house, Kathy was down in the basement when she noticed something unusual about a bookshelf against one wall. She realized the bookshelf could move and behind it was a small hidden room with red painted walls. This was the infamous Red Room, which, according to the book and movie, was one of the paranormal hotspots in the home. It wasn't long after Kathy discovered the Red Room when the house began to fill with a disgusting odor like rotting garbage. They also began to find puddles of a strange green slime in the carpets that, no matter how many times they cleaned it up, more would magically appear. After the house started to fill with the sickening odor, Kathy ordered the kids to go around the house and open the windows to let the stench out. 
Daniel went upstairs to his bedroom and raised open the window. But suddenly, the window came smashing down on his fingers and wouldn't lift back up. George and Kathy ran upstairs when she heard the boy screaming. It took Kathy, George, and Christopher all together to force the window back open. Daniel's fingers were smashed flat. She took him downstairs and Kathy went to fetch an ice pack for him. Only this once again turned into one of those strange moments where Daniel's mom seemed oddly unconcerned about the supernatural events that were happening right before her eyes. According to Daniel, while he stood there cradling his smashed fingers, a dark entity came into the room, knocked a knife off the counter, and sat down at the kitchen table, none of which Kathy appeared to notice. Then, when Kathy returned with the ice pack, the entity got up and walked right through Daniel, who later claimed that when this happened, his flattened fingers suddenly inflated and began to heal themselves. This is a different account from the book, though, which states that George and Kathy immediately rushed Daniel to the hospital. So once again, you have to stop and question which version to believe. On January 4th, day 18, the Lutzes told some family friends about the strange things they'd been experiencing inside the house. Their friends were frightened, and they told George and Kathy that they needed to get the house blessed again. They phoned Father Ray and asked him to come back out and finish the blessings. But Father Ray told them there was no way he was ever going to set foot in that house again. This all led up to day 27, the day before the Lutzes finally left the house on Ocean Avenue behind forever. Since they couldn't get Father Ray to come back, George and Kathy decided to bless the house themselves. This was a process where you open the home's windows and go from room to room with the Bible and order the spirits to leave. But according to George and Kathy, all this did was anger the evil forces inside the house even more. On the Lutz family's last night in the house, a terrible storm began to rage outside. At 3.15 a.m., George woke up once again. Only this time, he discovered he couldn't move. His body was completely paralyzed, and yet he was wide awake and aware of his surroundings. At the same time, he also began to hear a tremendous thumping coming from Christopher and Daniel's bedroom. Daniel later claimed that his and Chris's beds began levitating off the floor, flying up so high the bedpost smashed into the bedroom ceiling. George fought against his paralysis and tried to cry out for Kathy to go save the kids, but Kathy was frozen as well. Only he could see out of the corner of his eye that his wife's body was actually levitating above the bed. Outside, the family dog was howling. Suddenly, George and Kathy's paralysis broke. Kathy got out of bed, but then stopped as she stared at herself in the mirror. She suddenly became frozen again. This time out of terror because the reflection staring back at her was that of a haggard old crone. George could hear the front door slamming open and closed. He finally was able to raise himself out of bed, but by the time he did, the house went silent again. In the morning, George and Kathy called Father Ray one more time and begged him to help them. Father Ray told them they needed to get themselves and the kids out of that house. So that's what they did. On January 14, 1976, the Lutz family packed a few bags. Then they all climbed into their van and left the house at 112 Ocean Avenue behind. According to George, even as they sped away, they could feel invisible forces rocking the van back and forth down the road. But that's not where the story ends for the Lutzes either. George and Kathy took the children to Kathy's mother's house. Eventually, the family would move to San Diego. But in the days following their hasty exit from the house on Ocean Avenue, George and Kathy tried to find answers to what they'd narrowly escaped from. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Before I continue, I want to tell you about the folks at Gerber Life. Did you know that Gerber Life Guaranteed Life Insurance provides valuable whole life insurance protection to help cover your final expenses? It's true. And it can help with expenses such as medical bills, burial costs, and unpaid debts. It helps protect your family from the financial burden of your final expenses. If you're between 50 and 80 years old or 50 to 75 in New York, your coverage is guaranteed with this policy regardless of your health history. There are no medical exams to complete or lengthy health questionnaires to fill out. Simply visit GerberLifeFamily.com. And premiums don't increase over time. The amount you pay when coverage begins is the same amount you'll pay throughout the duration of your policy. Just answer four easy questions to get your free personalized quote instantly by visiting GerberLifeFamily.com. See website for terms and conditions. And now, back to the show. A few weeks after abandoning the house on Ocean Avenue, George Lutz reached out to parapsychologist Jerry Salfin at the Psychical Research Foundation in Durham, North Carolina. Salfin sent a field reporter out to investigate. He interviewed the Lutzes and came away convinced the couple were being sincere in their belief that the house was haunted. George and Kathy would also get in contact with Ronald DeFeo's attorney, William Weber, who is currently representing DeFeo in an appeal of his conviction. George was convinced by that point that Ronald DeFeo was telling the truth that evil spirits really had convinced him to murder his family. On February 15, 1976, George and Kathy Lutz appeared at a press conference with Weber where they told their harrowing story of their month in the haunted house. The press seized on this story immediately, and overnight the legend of the Amityville horror became international news. One of the primary theories many skeptics suggest about the Lutzes is that they made up the entire ghost story as a cash grab for book and movie deals. The idea is that George and Kathy bought this big house on Long Island that they couldn't afford, and when they realized that they were in financial trouble, they cooked up a story about ghosts in the hope of cashing in. But a lot of people who knew the Lutzes at this time insisted that George and Kathy actively avoided the spotlight at first. In fact, George kept paying the mortgage on the house for a few months before allowing it to go into foreclosure. According to George and Kathy, they only agreed to start doing interviews and eventually work with author Jay Anson to turn their story into the best-selling book, The Amityville Horror, in order to set the record straight. And yet this didn't really work the way the Lutzes planned either. Because they openly admitted that the book and movie took major liberties with their story and embellished a number of details. Over time, the relationship between the Lutzes, Jay Anson, and William Weber broke down. Weber tried getting George and Kathy to sign what sounds like a pretty outrageous contract that basically signed over their entire story to him. In the meantime, a young television reporter named Laura DiDio reached out to the Lutzes and asked them if she would allow her to assemble a team to return to the house. George and Kathy agreed. DiDio contacted the famous paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren to visit the house, along with a group of other parapsychologists and reporters. When DiDio and the others entered the house on 112 Ocean Avenue, it was just as George and Kathy had left it. The gingerbread house Kathy made was still sitting on the kitchen table. There was still food in the refrigerator. And the rest of the family's belongings were right where they left them, 
it was as if they were just out for the day and would be returning home soon. Now, there's a lot I could say about Ed and Lorraine Warren. If you've ever seen the Conjuring movies, then you've seen the fictionalized version of them. I may talk about them in greater length in a future episode, but... But for now, just know that Ed Warren offered his services as a demonologist, and Lorraine Warren claimed to be a clairvoyant and a light trance medium. When Lorraine Warren first entered the Lutz home, she said she began to feel ill almost immediately. This feeling only increased as she went from room to room throughout the house. Lorraine came away claiming that she sensed a great evil was inside the home. The Warrens would later claim that these demonic forces inside the house were so powerful that there was nothing they could do to drive them back out. They described it as the most evil house in America. During this visit, a photographer went through the house and took pictures of all the rooms. Later, when Laura DiDio was looking through the photo, she was startled to see what appeared to be the face of a little boy peeking out from one of the bedrooms. This, despite the fact that there were no children in the house that night. Some skeptics who have viewed the photograph have suggested it was just one of the crew members who accidentally got caught on camera, but no one knows for sure. After Ed and Lorraine the Warren's initial visit, George continued reaching out to other psychics and paranormal investigators, all of whom wanted to get a chance to get inside the house. The producers of the TV station Dio worked for arranged all the seance inside the house. Although the many psychics at the table all claimed to have sensed the great evil living inside, nothing overtly supernatural occurred, according to some of the reporters who were there that night. On January 13, 1977, another famous parapsychologist named Hans Holzer also asked permission to investigate the house. He brought Laura DiDio and a trance medium named Ethel Johnson with him. Johnson said that she sensed that the house was built in the site of an ancient Indian burial ground, although this was laughed off by local Indian tribes who said it was not only flagrantly untrue, but also sounded like the sort of cliched racist claptrap cooked up by Hollywood. It wasn't long after this when William Weber gave a bombshell interview in which he said that he worked with George and Kathy Lutz over several bottles of wine one night to concoct the story of the haunting, in order to make a bunch of money. He even released an audio recording of their meeting that backed up much of what he was claiming. In order to combat the number of stories coming out in the press that they were committing fraud, George and Kathy agreed to take a lie detector test. To their credit, they passed the test with flying colors, but... As you probably know, though, the use of lie detectors is highly controversial as to whether they actually work or not. Another nail in the coffin to the story of the haunting is the simple fact that there have been several owners of the house on Ocean Avenue since the Lutz family fled, and yet none of them have ever reported any ghostly experiences. In fact, most of those owners have desperately tried to disassociate the house with the story of the Amityville Horror. One of the later owners actually replaced the iconic eye-like windows that appeared on the book cover and movie posters. They also changed the address from 112 Ocean Avenue to 108 Ocean Avenue. But even still, sightseers often still head to Amityville to catch a glimpse of the most famous haunted house in America. So is it all hoax? Parapsychologist Peter Jordan and journalist Rick Moran think so. They investigated the haunting thoroughly and were able to point out hundreds of discrepancies throughout the book by Jay Anson and the Lutz's story. They even came up with an explanation for the mysterious incident in which Daniel Lutz's hand was smashed in the window. One day, Jordan and Moran were in the upstairs bedroom where the incident occurred, when suddenly the window flew open on its own. Jordan said he practically jumped out of his skin until Moran pointed out there was a creaky floorboard you could step on, 
that somehow affected the counterweight in the window, causing it to fly open. George and Kathy Lutz divorced in 1980. Kathy died of emphysema in 2004, and George died two years after that. There is one person to this day who still insists that the haunting was real. That's Kathy's son, Daniel, who was the subject of a 2012 documentary named My Amityville Horror. Daniel is clearly someone who has been deeply affected by the traumatic events of his childhood. In the documentary, Daniel talks about how much he hated George, describing him as an abusive monster who ruled the family with an iron fist. Daniel also suggests that it might not have been the house itself that was haunted, but rather the family instead. And it was all George's fault. Daniel says that George liked to dabble in the occult. He even claimed that George had a shelf full of occult books full of arcane rituals and black magic spells. Daniel even believes that George was able to tap into supernatural forces that gave him psychic abilities even before moving to the house in Amityville. Daniel said he once saw George levitating wrenches in his garage with the power of his mind. If that's true, then perhaps George Lutz's dabbling with black magic is what really brought out the evil forces that haunted 112 Ocean Avenue. Even though the Lutz family fled their home, hoping to leave their demons behind. Perhaps there are some doors that, once opened, can never be closed. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank Casey for becoming my latest Patreon supporter. And thanks to everyone else for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, as well as our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help us out is to subscribe and give us a great review wherever you get your podcast. Currently, you can find The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to check us out on social media. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can also send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. I like hearing from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.